Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. We know that we have a small window to invest in clean energy and innovation and clean tech. European Union unveils Green Deal Industrial Plan to catch up to America's Inflation Reduction Act. German police crack down on anti-coal protest. Plus, they write it up, they send it to Ohio, and Mike DeWine and the lawmakers click their heels and say, yes, sir. Dark money groups led Ohio Republicans to redefine natural gas as green energy. (laughs) All of those redefinitions of reality and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. He kept asking questions. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you vetoing it? And now we find out they're just puppets. There's a marrying a tear in another state that is just making them do the dance. What's the point of an election? The point is to get the puppets elected in Ohio. And they're doing pretty good at it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, this story out of Ohio is blowing my mind. It comes not long after a huge scandal from the nuclear and coal industry, and now it's the natural gas. Man, is there any Republican in Ohio who can't be bought off? (laughs) Well, we'll find out in a moment. But first, in Germany, Swedish teen climate activist Greta Thunberg was detained and released by police this week at a protest against expansion of a controversial coal mine that will destroy the historic village of Lutzerat. German officials say the coal is needed to address fossil energy shortages caused by Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. The demolition of Lutzerat is part of a compromise deal reached between the government and energy giant RWE last year, allowing the company to destroy the village in return for agreeing to end its coal use by 2030 rather than 2038. They're destroying the village in order to save it? That's the theory. A new report reveals banks are still financing dirty fossil fuel projects despite their public pledges to stop. Banking giant HSBC made a secretive $340 million loan to RWE, the fossil energy company that is bulldozing that village, just three months after HSBC pledged to phase out coal funding. HSBC is the worst. The new report by a coalition of major environmental groups called Banking on Climate Chaos shows the world's biggest banks are still heavily investing in fossil fuels, despite very public pledges to target net zero emissions. The top dirty dozen financial institutions include J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and HSBC. The report also found that since the adoption of the Paris Agreement six years ago, the world's largest banks have collectively given fossil fuel companies $4.6 trillion in funding. And given the rest of us the finger. Meanwhile, in Ohio, some rich guys in another state got together and said, we want to change 
natural gas to get a bit of a different definition because it suits our wealthy purposes. <laughs> That's Cleveland Plain Dealer editor Chris Quinn talking about how Ohio's Republican-controlled state legislature has falsely redefined polluting natural gas as green energy, <laughs> despite the fact that it is a significant contributor to man-made global warming. Unbelievable. Documents uncovered by Utility Watchdog Energy and Policy Institute show that the Orwellian language signed into law by Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine is the culmination of a dark money campaign by the American Legislative Exchange Council and other dark money groups to protect the fossil fuel industry. Now that part totally believable. The new law also expands oil drilling in the state's parks. Be aware the dark money groups are taking their disinformation campaign to other states. I'm serious. They just, you know, ran the Speaker of the House out of Ohio because he took tens of millions of dollars from the nuclear and coal industry. Now they're shoveling in money from the natural gas industry. Is there anything you cannot buy off an Ohio Republican to do at this point. Finally, the European Union this week unveiled a major clean tech industrial plan to accelerate deployment of renewable energy manufacturing as a counterweight to President Biden and the Democrats' landmark Inflation Reduction Act, which contains billions in subsidies for U.S.-based manufacturing. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland this week, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said it was important to avoid switching dependence on Russian fossil fuels with dependence on China for raw materials. We see aggressive attempts to attract our industrial capacities away to China and elsewhere. We have a compelling need to make this net zero transition without creating new dependency. We've learned our lessons from the fossil fuels. Have we? Have we learned our lessons? I'm not yet sure, especially in Ohio. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. I I started to realize that I I don't know too many people who change their mind because they lost an argument. (laughs) (laughs) Shane Claiborne is a prominent Christian speaker, activist, and best-selling author. Shane worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta and founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. He heads up Red Letter Christians, a movement of folks who are committed to living as if Jesus meant the things he said. How about that, people? At a time when religion is too often used to attack and manipulate, I want to focus on the boundless potential for good. And that's what we'll do with Shane Claiborne on this week's show. A different but widespread example of misusing something that has great potential for good is the flood of hate and bigotry poisoning the online world in which we all spend so much of our lives these days. A comprehensive new report from Interfaith Alliance titled Big Tech, Hate, and Religious Freedom Online is set for release on Wednesday, and we'll get a preview from Interfaith Alliance Advocacy Associate Rhea Coley. 
You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Each week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com and you can find out more of the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Shane Claiborne is a tireless activist for peace, justice, and grace. The co-founder of Red Letter Christians, Shane's many books include Becoming the Answer to Our Prayers, The Irresistible Revolution, and Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. Shane has a brand new book coming out February 7th, which means it is available for pre-ordering right now titled Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. It is great to have the author back with us on State of Belief Radio. Shane, welcome. Yeah, great to be here, man. It's always good to be with you. All right. We are good. We are good. And you, I can, I can smell it over the radio. Uh, you just came from the forge. Do I have that I, right? I did. Yes, I did. We've been, uh, you know, it's only a block away from my house and we've got this beautiful storefront right under Kensington Avenue, uh, which Kensington Avenue is, is, uh, a place with a lot of troubles, you know, under the Ave. And, uh, and so we deliberately got a storefront there where we get guns off the street. We take donated guns and we decommission them. So we chop them up and we've got, um, all of our equipment there to, blacksmith those guns and repurpose them so inspired by the prophets that they shall beat their swords into plows we're we're beating guns into garden tools and loving it and uh yeah what i was doing today man was i'm these handles are made from the woodstock so i made my first handles today and i'm real excited about them so i made like four of these uh that are made from they're made from the wood wood stock from the like from the rifles you know the wood part of it so yeah pretty awesome so you all can't see this uh, but but I I I am going to explain to you what <laughs> Shane just went and grabbed something he he has a he has a trowel or something like that which is used for gardening and then also another piece of equipment that could be used for gardening and th- this is amazing so this is these are actual this is actual metal from guns that were used for violence on the streets of Philadelphia. And here they are now instruments of peace and, and, and cultivation of food sustenance for the body and the soul. That's it, man. This is a witness. This is the kind of witness. So I I have so much to talk to you about, but I do want to take a step back and because I've known about you longer than I've known you, but then, but I've known you for a while. You didn't start this way. You came out of a quite a traditional, maybe even conservative Christian tradition. And and I, I just wonder, like, if you could just talk us through a little bit about your faith journey. 
from where you came from to where you are now. And I know that's a long conversation, but but give us a little, give our listeners a little bit of a sense of where you come from. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the brief version. So I, I, you know, grew up in East Tennessee, and I can't hide it. Don't even want to, Paul. I, lo- I got my Southern accent and uh, grew up in the hills small town in East Tennessee. And that's, you know, and I, I grew up hunting. My, my family were gun owners, hunters. Um, and, um, you know, on a lot of these issues that we feel so passionately about, Paul, and, you know, gun violence, the death penalty, militarism and war, poverty. I mean, I had strong opinions um, the other way, you know, and so that, that gives me a lot of patience because I spent as much, of, almost as much of my life arguing for the death penalty as I've spent um, trying to end it. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I fell in love with Jesus in East Tennessee, uh, going to a Methodist church. They gave an altar call. The preacher talked about, you know, what Jesus did on the cross. And and it hit me, you know, I, in the words of Wesley, I felt my heart strange, strangely warmed, you know, and I, I went mm. forward, gave, dedicated my life to Jesus. And, uh, you know, some people I meet, they're, you know, their story, their testimony, <laughs> my life was such a mess. And then I met Jesus and everything came together. And for me, Paul, you know, um, it was kind of like, I, I felt like my life was pretty together and I met Jesus. And that's where things started to, you know, flip on their head because I, I saw Jesus <laughs> saying, sell, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, the last or first, the first or last. And you know, here I am. I'm, I mean, just to throw it all out there, I, I was prom king, Paul, but I, I always say like, wow. it only wow. shows you what a small town I'm from. So you know, <laughs> don't, don't be too impressed. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, you know, I kept leaning in to Jesus because I was convinced that Christianity had to be more than just um, a, a set of beliefs. You know, it was really a reorientation of our lives. And I wanted to know more about that. And that's how I ended up in Philly. I, um, I went to a little school outside of Philly uh, called Eastern University, and I studied uh, sociology, interestingly enough, you know, with our friend, Tony Campolo. Yeah. And I, I always yeah. like how Tony um, and Carl Barth said this, you know, you, you've got to read the Bible in one hand, but you got to hold the newspaper in the other so that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore the world that we're living in. And so studying sociology and studying the Bible at this Christian college, you know, uh, it was it it really shaped who I am. And and and, and what I'm doing now is, is kind of the natural outgrowth of all that. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think we we unfortunately we are at a place in this country where, you know, when someone says they're a Christian, you're like, oh, oh, like, what's that going to mean? You know, because it, it, it has almost become identical with kind of right-wing politics. And that's a terrible thing to say because it is it is absolutely not true for the majority of Christians in America. But if you, if you like in the media or anything like that, people say, oh, my Christian faith. And on Twitter, if someone has Christian in there, you know what they're going to do, you know? And it's very, it's very, very hard. And, and I, you know, you're, you're, you're someone who, I mean, this is completely my words, but you kind of went in there thinking, okay, this is like the cherry on the top of my perfect Sunday. This is going to be delicious. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, I have to rethink the meal, you know, and, and here you are doing this work, which has been a long road for you. And I want to just 
you know, show my respect because I, I don't know that I've been able to do it publicly as much as I want to do it today for how how your testimony is is inspiring to me and and gives me hope. And, you know, for you to come from your forge where you are taking literally taking guns uh, and turning them into plowshares. And then and here we are talking about what what it means to be in this world today. It's just amazing. Now, my little compliment is nothing compared to what you got last weekend. And I want you have to let us talk to us a little bit about this because uh, you got the beloved community award at the King's Center with Bernice King. I mean, that must have been just one of those moments. It, it was really special. Uh, you know, I was thinking, though, as you were talking, Paul, we, the, I, I don't know if you've seen these T-shirts, but you were saying, you know, I'm not that kind of Christian. There's these shirts now that say, I'm the love your neighbor kind of Christian, not the storm the capital kind, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that's amazing. That's it. That's exactly you know, what I'm talking about. Right, right, right. Well, we're going to get there, by the way. We're honestly, going to talk about that. Know, yeah, honestly, but, but I want talk a little bit about what it meant to to – to, to be at the King Center, to be, you know, in the company of amazing people who you must have who must have been there. And then and to consider yourself part of that legacy. That's that's really remarkable. Yeah, well, I mean, and first of all, you know, this this is very connected because the first time that I uh, got to meet and spend a little bit of time with Dr. Bernice King, we were we were really grieving the state of Christianity in, in the sense of like sort of the loud voices, like what we've um, the distorted image of Christianity that's out there. Um, and, you know, we've, we've done several things uh, over the years together, but it, it was, it's one of those things I, I get kind of uh, embarrassed, you know, because I'm not big on hype. You, you, you know, that Paul and I, you know, I, Tony always says, beware when people speak well of you. That's what they said of the false prophets, you know? <laughs> so, Thanks, you know, Tony. Okay. I, Last time I speak well of Tony Campolo, who, by the right. way, I, I think is a fabulous person, but I, I won't say that aloud anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I so I, I'm not, you know, really big on hype and awards, but I, I, I mean, gosh, if there's anybody that, you know, has the credibility to, to really celebrate, um, redemptive work. I mean, Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott King, um, Dr. Bernice in the King Center. I mean, they're they're doing such beautiful work and really still have that edge and the charism of Dr. King, you know, the love and the justice. And so um, when they told me that I'd be receiving this award, you know, I mean, I was just floored, you know, on my yeah. knees and yeah and uh oh, and then they, it just kept unfolding you know it they surprised me with reverend barber who's you know a dear friend a part of red letter oh, christian oh, we've, marched, we've gone to jail together and he got the award last year uh but came back this year to present it to me and oh, wow. uh that was just a i mean the whole thing i had my family there my I, as I said, I had my in-laws and my outlaws, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we just got to back to East Tennessee, but uh, that 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 sounds. I mean, how how wonderful and and uh, you know, I agree. I mean, that if we're if we're looking for an example for a Christian, the kind of Christian that we need today, we we should look at King, who uh, was fueled by his faith, who was you know governed by the 
you know, the, the mandates of Jesus around about around both peace and justice going hand in hand. I mean, it's just amazing. And so uh, for you to be in that in that uh, it, it, recognized there, that's it. congratulations. Thanks, bro. Your, it was your just, glow just is coming through. Uh, but, but that's And East Tennessee was well represented. Dolly Parton also got, uh, you know, uh, the award for her work on education and literacy, you know, and Lord. So, you know, Lord. our our grandparents grew up on the same hillside, so that was something special. You know, and there were what? so many. What? Oh my God! So okay, <laughs> now now it's interesting. <laughs> it was all into you know King Barber, you. That's fine, but Dolly Parton. Now you got my attention. Honestly, I think she's the only person in America that everybody likes. You know, I mean, I I I, I do. I think like if she ran for president, it's it's done. No one else needs to run. <laughs> Dolly Parton for president. We were together next to the Capitol um, just a couple of weeks ago on on January sixth, recognizing what happened. You wrote a really interesting um, op ed uh, article about about that and and talking about Paul's letter to the Galatians. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you're seeing this Christian nationalism. I mean, you, again, like, you know, you, you come out of a more, you know, evangelical Christian tradition. What's happening? I mean, you know, I mean, it's not your, I'm not putting it on you. I'm just saying like, can you offer any insight into what, what's going on? Like how, where, where are we? Um, with uh, kind of white evangelicals. You have to solve this for us today by the end of this conversation. Okay, friend? Well, you know, when we were together in, in that op-ed, I quoted uh, uh, Paul's letter to Galatians, which I think is so appropriate when it comes to what's happening right now. And he said, I mean, this is a quote from Galatians 1, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And he says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So, I mean, that it's, it's pretty amazing how the true those words ring you know, to us today, because this, it really is a perversion of the Christian faith. Um, I don't I, anytime I put Christian nationalism together, I put Christian in quotes because the word Christian means Christ like. And that's, you know, what really breaks my heart is that there's nothing Christ like about what happened on January 6th. There's not much that's Christ like that I hear from uh, folks that have been um, supporters of Trump, that have been champions of Christian nationalism. I think many of them, um, you know, what you don't hear much of is love. And that's what Jesus said, that you, they will know that you belong to me by your love. Uh, all the law is summed up into this love, love God, mm. love your neighbor. So, you know, there there may have been a lot of Jesus flags and bumper stickers, as our friend Amanda Tyler says, you know, that Jesus was the mascot. Um, mascot. But, Damn, but that's the, good. Yeah, but there was there wasn't anything that that really looked like Jesus, sounded like Jesus, uh, or you know, and you don't see that love that we see in Jesus. So I don't see any reason to call it Christian, um, because you know that that. But there is this kind of pursuit of power that mm. um, it's it's as if like we never heard Jesus say, "What good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul?" <laughs> You know, what wow. good is it 
to win a majority of the Supreme Court seats and lose your soul. And that's what we saw happen is that people really forfeited their soul for the pursuit of political power. And, you know, as, as, as our friend Tony Campolo says, when you try to mix political power with the Christian faith, it's kind of like mixing ice cream with cow manure. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't do much damage to the manure, but it ruins, absolutely ruins the ice cream. And so this pursuit of power um, is what it's about. But, you know, underneath that, man, there's there's so many layers of th- that. There's no coincidence that this kind of current iteration of the culture war came on the back of the first black president, the changing demographics of America, right. even how we're telling the truth about history. There are people that want to go back. You know, that's when people say make America great again. uh, I think many of them are very clearly saying make America white again. And this is about feeling like people are replacing us. It's about not having the control, uh, you know, the the ability to be the moral gatekeepers of society. So, you know, I think that's all underneath it. Honestly, one of the one of the things that I think has been so valuable with Amanda's work at Christians Against Christian Nationalism is exactly what you just did. It's like preaching a different kind of truth. We're not ceding the Christian space here, but also saying like this has been part of the Christian legacy in America. Christians have been at this for a long time, unfortunately, you know, the legitimization of slavery, you know, and all the, you know, and so, so I think this is, it's not unexpected, but, but I think the way you just outlined it is just so helpful. And I, I appreciate it so much. I want to talk a little bit about your book. Why this book? Why this book right now? <laughs> well, uh, so, I mean, the new book that's coming out is uh, Rethinking Life. Before I get there, though, I think it's important that the last two books that I wrote were about fairly particular issues. One, um, Executing Grace is about the death penalty, but right. it's bigger than the death penalty, right? It's it's the whole idea that at the heart of our faith is an executed and risen savior (laughs) who said, I didn't, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick, you know, blessed are the merciful, all this stuff. And so it it raises a question, is anybody beyond redemption? And that's Mm. that to me, that's what the death penalty is about. And, And what was so troubling to me is that the, the biggest demographic of supporters for the death penalty in America are Christians. Uh, yep. particularly white evangelical Christians. Right. Um, and, and, and the Bible belt is the death belt. You know, that, I mean, states like Tennessee, right? We still have the electric chair in Tennessee, Paul. Um, and we just used it. Not, I mean, like, so th- that's, you know, that's the backdrop for that. And then my, after that, I wrote Beating Guns because I discovered that Christians are also the biggest gun owners and gun enthusiasts in America. So two thirds of Americans live without guns, two thirds, but almost half of the Christians own guns. <laughs> we own wow. guns you know what? I, I had never heard exactly that statistic. That is really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, th- this is this is problematic to me, you know, I mean, because I, I, I really think, you know, Jesus is the prince of peace. He said, love your enemies. It becomes impossible to love our enemies and simultaneously prepare to kill them, you know. And, and so I think like the cross and the gun give us two really different versions of power. And uh-huh. one of them says, I'm willing to die. And the other says, I'm willing to kill. And I think it's really 
impossible to kind of try to hold those together. Um, but then, you know, I, I really began to realize that we've got to build a broader foundation for our value of life. And that's what this, you know, new book, Rethinking Life is about, is, is not just one issue, but going, what does it really, what are the implications of believing that every single person is equally made in the image of God? Um, uh-huh. and, and, and that conviction that um, every person is sacred. So, you know, I get into like how abortion, you know, be, began to eclipse all the other issues when we think about what it means to be for life, you know, pro-life yeah. champ, champions yeah. of life. Um, but I also, you know, and, and, and this, the, the response from, for black lives matter, that all lives matter, you know, so that's, that, that's kind of the, the, <laughs> that's really, that's it's really into. interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm, I think that, you know, I, I'd actually love to hear, you know, I, I'm, my whole family, mostly the women in my family are very strongly pro-choice and as am I, but I understand, you know, there is a, there is another side to that issue. And, uh, you know, as much as I want laws to protect people's right to choose, I also respect people when they say, that's not what I want to do. And that's what, not what I want my family to do. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I'm curious how you, how you, how you thread that needle for yourself and how you imagine society threading that needle. Well, I, I think that one of the reasons that this is a, a tricky issue, more complicated than some of the other ones, is because Jesus doesn't mention it. Um, it's it's really not even, um, uh, we don't even have teaching on it in the scripture. There's a couple of like verses that we might have, you know, create implications for abortion. There's one kind of obscure one in, in the um, in Exodus. But, um, you know, like when it comes to really the teaching of scripture, this is an issue that we, we, it's hard to like, no, I think it's really complicated because um, I don't think we're all going to resolve uh, when we believe that life begins. And I, I have some polls that um, I did and others have done to show that like, we're really divided on folks that think it begins at conception. It be- begins, you know, at heartbeat, it begins at, uh, you know, when the baby can live outside of the, the womb. So the, you know, some folks believe it begins at first breath. That's what, you know, many Jewish folks believe. So it's very tricky to uh, resolve that. But here's what I began. I kind of suggest (laughs) I offer is that can we say that we want to protect life um, by trying to reduce the number of abortions? Um, the, The old, you know, uh, uh, statement that many used to say is abortion be should be legal, safe, and rare. And let's work to make it rare and rare. Now, incidentally, I think some people immediately think to making it illegal. But if you look at what's most effective in actually reducing the number of abortions, uh, it's things like health care and child care, having access to affordable child care, um, many things that have been blocked by folks that say that they want to eliminate abortion, and yet the number one cause of abortion consistently is financial stability and feeling like uh, someone's not able to, to economically care for uh, another child. So um, yeah, I really you know, appreciate that. I, I kind of want to step back and think about it, you know, with a little bit broader lens, you know. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's really, really helpful. And, you know, it, one of the the great ironies is the wrong word, but all the states that are outlawing abortion have just no 
support for new mothers. No, no maternity care, no, no money for anything. You know, I mean, it's really like it's it's an absolute, you know, you can't do one and then not give the, you know, so it, it's really like uh, it's one of these things. I really appreciate what you're trying to do there. And also to take it back. And, you know, I love that you're including like the the Black Lives Matter movement and, and just really taking this into um into the lives of people, you know, across the across the country and across the spectrum. So I think that you, you know the, the the idea of rethinking life. I think anybody who's looking at your book is going to say, "Oh, this is a b- abortion book," but but you're, the way you're, what you're saying is actually no, it's not. It's actually a life book. And let me let you know. Let me let me let me claim all of those things. We need to take another break, but we will continue the conversation with Shane Claiborne in just a minute. And later, reporting on big tech, hate, and religious freedom online. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all on stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. In honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Day. We're looking at what injustice in healthcare looks like for insured people. How is it that even those with health insurance face crushing medical debt in America? What choice do patients really have when they find themselves fighting for their lives and unable to pay the exorbitant costs for their care? And what far-reaching impact can medical debt have? To find out, we spoke to Monique Davis, a nonprofit executive living in Southern California. She was diagnosed with amyloidosis, a rare medical condition in 2016 that required her to have several rounds of treatment and a stem cell transplant. She had health insurance, but the treatments and multiple ambulance rides still left Monique and her husband with thousands of dollars of medical debt, relentless harassment from debt collectors, and a ruined credit score. The ambulance companies were actually the worst. I mean, even when the hospitals would call, they were at least polite, right? Like they politely demanded money, but the ambulance companies were rude. They would yell at us. They would, you know, say all kinds of awful things. And they would call at all hours of the day. And like I said, they would call at work and they would call frequently throughout the day. And so that was stressful. It was scary because we didn't know if they, and they would threaten us, like, we're going to take you to court. We're going to take your paycheck. So we were just, we were scared. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wack wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time. Stay healthy. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. I'm joined by author and activist Shane Claiborne. You are someone who has changed your mind 
on some things over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like, you know, and this is this I don't, I don't know like exactly the progression and I've had to, I've, I'm not saying you, you changed your mind. I started perfect and I, I maintained that, uh, but you have changed some things. Uh, you know, I mean, I, we all have changed our mind, I, but I am curious as someone who comes from an evangelical white evangelical background and then took these, you know, very, what do you view as a constructive engagement and have you experienced anything recently that gave you hope? as far as constructive engagement? Because I think we're all looking for, we all believe in that, but we're all trying to figure out how do we do that in a way that um, that actually like lives out our principles and helps us understand more, but then also like, you know, hopefully creates a, a more cohesive society. Yeah, well, I, I started to realize, Paul, that I, I don't know too many people who change their mind because they lost an argument. <laughs> and um, I, I believe in doing better theology, you know, countering bad theology with good theology. I believe in engaging like our minds. But I also know that a lot of times our hearts change and our heads follow our hearts. And mm-hmm. And for me, like, on a lot of these things, um, I had worked out in my head what I thought, and then I got closer to the people impacted by it, and I saw the holes in my own theology, you know. But for instance, I mean, that's the case with being uh, visiting folks on death row. Um, I met folks that I know are innocent um, that are facing uh, execution. I also met folks that are guilty and they've told me what they did. And I've seen what, you know, God has done in their life over years and years. And that's why I believe so passionately that the death penalty um, betrays the gospel, the possibility of redemption, you know, Um, and somewhere, I mean, even with abortion, as I was writing about this book, I didn't know some of the, the women that I'm closest to in my life, including my mom. Um, have had an abortion that didn't we didn't have safe places to talk about that you know Um, I talked to someone as I was researching for rethinking life that had twins and lost one of them late in her pregnancy and is faced with this horrendous decision and I mean you 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 know we hear all this stuff on the news about late-term abortions you're like and I'm still yet to meet any woman that just decided you know I'm going to have an abortion without any like without it threatening her life or the life of the the child inside of her. And so I, I think we get, you know, so polarized by our opinions and, and, um, and, and one of the people I really point to in, in rethinking life, but also is true in my own life, Paul, that has shaped how I think about some of these things is mother Teresa. You know, I worked with her in India when she was still alive and she is known for her passion about abortion but she also called governors the night before executions <laughs> and said, uh-huh. do what Jesus would have you do. I'm praying for you to show mercy, you know? Uh-huh. And I mean, she got in the middle of wars and, and rescuing people that were um, injured in those wars. And she was such a passionate voice for life and, you know, never picketed an abortion clinic with a, you know, abortion is murder sign. Like she just, like love people. She came alongside people that were in really difficult situations. Um, And so, you know, to me, that's what I want to be. I want to be that kind of activist, you know, and and opinions and bumper stickers, they don't necessarily 
require much of us, you know? And yet the, the question I'm asking all through this new book is what does love require of us? I think part of what you've just been talking about is what it means also to show up in the places with a heart that is, is loving. So like Mm. you going to death row, part of your, the origins of your ministry is that you, you weren't sure what to do. And so you moved to, you know, a a very rough part of, of Philly and you just try, you know, you try to live there and love your neighbors. I'm at my best when I show up with an attitude of trying to learn and love and expect to be changed as much as I'm there to offer any witness. So I think that, I just think that the ministry of of presence and you showing up on January 6th with a cross that was a gun, thinking of like what it meant for several people who died that day because of violence, in part inspired by a, a warped Christian sense. So I remember you wrote a book called Jesus for President. Do I have that right? Yeah. I've thought about that a bunch of times. We decry the role of religion in politics, and yet it's impossible not to be involved and not to feel like our faith is calling us to a certain political leaning or something like that. And that comes from all sides. I'm curious how you view that today and if you're still believe in everything you wrote at that time or does this feel like a different time yeah well we we you know we incidentally just re-released jesus for president this past year we wrote a new forward to it and i went back through the old content kind of looking at it and uh you know this is this was really the fire in our bones when we wrote jesus for president was that this is about how we hope right and and where our hope resides and the challenge i think with political engagement is we end up misplacing our hope and we put our hope in a person or a candidate or a party to change the world and the interesting thing i see in the early christians um and that i hope is true of me is that um every time they were saying jesus is lord they were saying Caesar is not. And it was a declaration of their hope. You know, as the old hymn goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. So, you know, our hope is not in the, uh, you know, the elephant of the GOP or the donkey of the Democrats, but it's really grounded in Christ. And a lot of these issues to me are not about left and right. They're about right and wrong. And they really go to the center of our faith. So Jesus, for me, is the sounding board um, uh-huh. and the mor- the moral compass. You know, so when we think about immigrants, um, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. I mean, it doesn't get much clearer than that. And interesting, like, like some of our highest numbers of refugees and immigrants have been welcomed under Republican presidents. Some of our worst policies have evolved even now are still evolving. I mean, I'm very disappointed with our current immigration policy and what's happening on the border. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, with with some of the other things like military spending, it's not really a partisan thing. You know, um, uh, Obama raised Bush's military budget. Trump raised Obama's military budget. Biden raised Trump's military budget, you know, and now we're spending right. twenty five thousand dollars every single second <laughs> you know so it just wow. boggles the mind so yeah right. 
but you know, that's where Jesus, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor reorients everything uh, for me. So I'm not partisan, uh, but I do think that when we wrote Jesus for president, Paul, as you may know, we had, we had some serious anar Christian anarchistic leanings, you know, coming out yes. of the, the Catholic worker movement, Dorothy Day and others. And, um, you know, probably had a, a sign on the wall that said if voting changed anything, it would be illegal, you know, stuff like that. So it was, you know, I think that um, what I think now is that voting is one tool that we have in the toolbox that we should use. And there's a price to pay for not using it. Um, and I would say I've learned a lot of that from uh, from friends of color, you know, like folks like Reverend Barber and yeah. um, and, and, and other other folks that have seen a different side of this than me as a white person. Um, their ancestors, you know, went to jail and died for this. I mean, being at, the, you know, the King Center, of course, this week, you know, you you're reminded of that. So now what I think, I think of voting as damage control, as harm reduction. And mm -hmm. to me, that's helpful because it's a different posture. You know, I'm not thinking this is going to be the, you know, the, the, the single thing that's going to change the world. But I do want to harness the principalities and powers. I want to vote uh, for the person that I think is going to do the least amount of damage to the world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I think some, that's some absolutely might say right. It's cynical, but you know, I, I no, think it's, it's not cynical yeah. at all. It's actually a, it's a, it's a, it's a stance. And I remember there were a lot um, specifically of, you know, I just remember a lot of black women speaking up in the election between Clinton and Trump uh, in 2016 saying, we don't have an option not to vote in this it, because we're, you know, no one's perfect, but we are trying to avoid damage to our community. And there were people who sat that out because they, you know, they felt like neither one of the options were good. But then, but really, there were people who just said that's that was a privileged stance. You yeah. know that that you know that we need now we see what's about what's coming at us, and uh, so I I think that's really, you know, really really interesting and important. Um, yeah, dude. You know, the, and the other thing is, I I think I've seen like um, that. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of folks that are very disappointed with the the, you know, Congress, the Supreme Court. I mean, and and so there's a great article in the Atlantic that said, "How will this generation change Washington?" when they hate it so much. <laughs> right. and, and so there is a disappointment there, but I think there's also a sense for me that I, when I'm vote, when I think about voting, I also think one way to think about it is I'm voting in solidarity with mm -hmm. those whose lives are at stake. I'm voting for asylum seekers and immigrants. I'm voting for uh, folks that are um, struggling with poverty and healthcare. So in one sense, like I'm gonna vote for those who are most vulnerable in our society um, and vote against the forces that are crushing their lives. And some of these things like governor races, I didn't even pay attention. So I started, you know, I started working on the death penalty and there's some things that I think governors don't have a whole lot of influence on, but I mean, when it comes to executing people, and this is the craziest thing, like the governor in almost every state in this country has the sole power to stop executions or to continue them. In Pennsylvania, we still have the death penalty, but we have a governor that says, I don't want to kill anybody. And, yeah. and that, you know, so, I mean, they, these things can make a difference. Yeah. This is a big question, but it's something that, you know, that I'm thinking a lot about is like, what is the, are the best ways we can protect democracy right now? 
protect, you know, the ability for people to feel like they have a right to live in dignity and respect and also to have control over the, the way they live their lives. What are the ways you're thinking about democracy right now? Well, so there's there's a, a couple of things that come to mind. And one of them is that I, I really believe that one of the biggest threats to democracy is this version of nationalism that's trying to camouflage itself as Christianity. Um, and I mean, we saw that evidenced on January 6th. Um, not only is it a threat to democracy, but it's also a threat to authentic Christian faith. It's distorting our faith in the same way that extremists have extorted, you know, have distorted other, um, you know, faiths. And so I'm very concerned about that. Um, one of the anecdotes, I think, is uh, to get our history right. You know, as Christians, we we know that saying, like, the truth will set you free. And, um, you know, the, when, when we think of our history, this is one of the battles that's, you know, uh, been going on is, are we going to tell the truth about our history? Um, the, the movement for Black Lives has really helped to helped us remember that we we've buried so many different lies of how we remember history. I mean, we're not going to get our future right until we get our history right. For folks to be able to follow you, what would be the best way? If you do some social media. I see you around, but it's not your Yeah, primary. man, I'm pretty active on uh, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So folks can find me there. It's just my name. Uh, and yep. then, yeah, we, we really are building a movement. Um, Red Letter Christians, Paul, you've been integral to all that. And um, one of the things that we say is that the way that we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. And so there's a whole bunch of musicians, writers, preachers, uh, pastors, you know, folks just doing really creative, beautiful work that looks like Jesus, that, yeah. you know, sounds oh, like my Jesus. goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's so great to talk to you. It's so I mean, I love it. Shane Claiborne is an activist, best-selling author, and popular speaker who brings the teachings of his faith into very real hands-on action. Shane, thank you so much for being with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you, buddy. Let's do it again soon. See you. We need to take one last break and then Rhea Coley with a preview of Big Tech, Hate, and Religious Freedom Online. You're listening to State of Belief Radio brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. Did I mention that Kevin McCarthy, the aforementioned piece of is he is just a coward. Not just that he took amazing Congress people off of committees that were well qualified. He put Marjorie Taylor Greene yep. on Homeland Security. She's an insurrectionist and she was a 9-11 denier in charge of Homeland Security. Yes. Someone that previously has said 9-11 was a hoax. Oh, my God. Oh, my okay. God. And someone who said that there are Satan worshiping people yes. in government. Yes. Yes. Oh, I can add that. Yes. She's also on the oversight committee with Paul Gosar and Lauren Boebert. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. That's new today. Yeah, that's funny. Okay. Because uh, Steve Bennon made a great point on Twitter. An FBI official is on record as saying Eric Swalwell is, quote, under no suspicion of wrongdoing. There is something amazing about watching McCarthy engage in actual McCarthyism. 
right? What did he say yesterday? If you saw what I saw from the FBI, you wouldn't have a Swalwell on any committee. That is exactly the opposite of what the FBI yep. said. Mm-hmm. On three separate occasions, in fact, they uh, thanked him for cooperating yeah. immediately when they notified him of this Chinese spy or whatever. He did everything right. As a Dawn lover, what would be the worst thing you could hear about George Santos? Oh. <laughs> Let's yeah. say you appreciate our veteran service and you are a dog lover. I mean. What if you were going to make up something about, not that you would make things up, about George Santos like he would. Well, all I know is I that George know. Santos used a Jewish last name so that it would get right. more money, too. Yes. More money from Jews. Yes, there's that. But that's not the main story for me this morning. The main story. The dog. Yeah, this is pretty. This that is... he stole a die, or veteran's dying dog's GoFundMe money. Yeah. And the dog died, and so did the vet. Oh, my God. His fake dog charity. So he stole the money. He stole the money from a dying dog and a veteran. veteran. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. Today's technology has connected us like never before and made it possible for both loving relationships and terrible hate to thrive online. On Wednesday, January 25th, Interfaith Alliance is releasing an important new report titled Big Tech, Hate, and Religious Freedom Online. And that same day, we're having a webinar featuring expert voices on this topic, which will highlight the urgency of the situation and hopefully offer real solutions. Spearheading this immense effort at Interfaith Alliance has been advocacy associate Rhea Coley, and I'm happy that she is with us today to preview what's coming on Wednesday. So Rhea, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Excited to be here. Big Tech, Hate, and Religious Freedom Online. What's the motivation to get this out there? Yeah, well, we know that hate and harassments are intense and urgent threats to religious freedom. You know, a single act of hate can make an entire community feel unsafe and really fear being targeted just because of their religion or identities. And the sad reality is, is that hate and harassment don't just exist offline anymore, and it hasn't for a long time. And social media platforms host hateful content, but what this report really emphasizes is that these platforms amplify it. So I think it's just highlighting this urgent threat and ensuring that people are aware and what we can do from here. And I think what's really exciting about this is how, yes, we're talking about hate and we're talking about um, big tech, but we're also talking about religious freedom. And we're talking about the way people experience their religion and live out their religion online, which should be safe without intimidation. And it should be, you know, we should think about it as invitational rather than intimidation. So this is really important. I'm excited for it to be released next Wednesday, January 25th. So who would you like the audience to be? Who, If you could sit someone down and say, I want you to read this report, who, who is it? Is it our listeners? Is it politicians? Is it executive attack? All of the above. Who, who do you have in mind? You know, I really think the kind of people that would benefit from this reading this report is really anybody who uses social media, um, which is, you know, a wide list of people. Um, social media is so ubiquitous in our lives that understanding how platforms catalog and show you content is so important to being 
a media literate person in this day and age. And I think anybody would benefit from understanding um, what kind of content they're seeing on social media and why and what kind of structural aspects of the big tech industry and the platforms themselves, how they contribute to cataloging how you see content online. You're not going into a neutral space. You're not going into a space, you know, someone created the space into which you're stepping. And it has all sorts of dangerous tides and eddies and flows. And if you're not aware of them, it it will affect them and they're intentional. And, and so like, I think what you're doing is helping any, any internet user, any social media user, which by the way, just, it can be Facebook, it can be Twitter, it can be TikTok, it, it can be, you know, really almost, almost anytime you go online, you're affected by this. Am I right about that? A hundred percent. I think it's totally right to view this as the intentional cataloging of what you see. And I think we all have a right to know why we see it and where we see it and how the platforms that we spend so much of our time on are choosing to show us content that may not be true or is hateful and just makes us feel unsafe in our daily lives. Well, one of the things that I've, I saw in your report, I've had a sneak preview, people, I'm very, very privileged, uh, is, um, is the idea of monetizing hate, which means like, you know, actually hate is something that benefits companies. And, but the, the victims of that are those of us who may want to share a prayer online, who may want to, you know, uh, join one another for Shabbat or, um, or, or Friday prayer. And yet we, we, can, we get attacked online and we feel unsafe and we feel intimidated and shut down because the, the, the algorithms are inviting people who are, are, are inviting hate into our lives. So the, much more in the report that we'll be dropping on Wednesday, January 25th. I, on that same day, we're having a webinar and I just, I'm, I am moderating it and I'm so excited because we, you have collected this incredible panel that I just think is like, you know, one of the most impressive. Tell our listeners a little bit about who's on that panel and and what they can expect. Yeah, absolutely. So we have three really exciting guests for the panel next week. Um, Zaki Barzinji from Aspen Digital, who does work at the intersection of tech, policy, equity, and justice for underrepresented communities. We also have Lauren Krapp, who's Technology Policy and Advocacy Council at the Anti-Defamation League and Paul Barrett from NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights, who's done a lot of research and writing on the role of social media and big tech in a democracy. So it's a really interesting cross-section of perspectives, which I'm sure will lend itself to a really exciting and insightful conversation on a pretty nebulous issue. Yeah, this is like a great compliment to the um, to the report that's coming out on January 25th. What time is it? Can you remind me? Is it noon 12, Eastern? 12 p.m. Eastern, yeah. Noon Eastern. Okay, great. If you go to interfaithalliance.org, we're going to have a, a link right there for you to sign up. So please go out and do that and join us. It's going to be really spectacular. Ria, I really appreciate you joining us here today for a little taste of what's to come and more next week when we're going to be able to feature the speakers from that panel. Ria, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. 
We need your help keeping this show on air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. You can be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. And until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.